Good morning, listeners. You're welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. Later on in the programme, I will be talking to Martin Hayden, TD, about his visit to Brary last Thursday. I will also be talking to Alice Doyle from the IFA on the Fair Deal Scheme. And my final guest this morning will be Gareth Higgins, Dr. Gareth Higgins. In fact, he's an eye surgeon in Waterford Hospital, and he's going to be talking about the dangers of Lyme. My first guest this morning, listeners, is Matthew Ryan from the Chagas office in Turles. Good morning, Matthew, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. Matthew, you want to encourage farmers to use DBI. Can you explain to me and the listeners what DBI is? Yeah, so, okay. um, Jim, first thing I'd like to say is don't mix up the, the EBI with the DBI. They sound similar, but they're completely different. So the, the EBI is a dairy-focused um, selection index. So for, for dairy traits such as milk and fertility, it's completely different to, to the DBI. So the DBI is the Dairy Beef Index, and um, it was a breeding tool that was launched by the ICBF and Chagas back in 2019. And the primary objective was to improve um, the quality of beef animals produced from the dairy herd. You know, right. it, it basically what it does, Jim, is it develops a monetary value for a given sire on certain traits um, he has that are useful to the dairy sector, but more importantly, they're of use to, to, to the beef sector as well. So it, it's focused on dairy a little bit, but it's more focused on, on beef. And it was designed to better allow a dairy farmer to pick bulls that will still somewhat be easy cabin, and which is important to the dairy herd from an ease of management point of view. But it has the desirable uh, beef merits uh, so they can have a more saleable calf that actually has value to the to the beef sector. Okay. And where it's also useful for Jim is is for the for the pedigree breeders who are breeding bulls for, for, for dairy herds. And what then is the aim of the DBI? So the, the aim of the DBI, Jim, was to create, uh, in a nutshell, I suppose, a more saleable calf without having um, a minimal um, um, impact on the dairy cow's performance in terms of you know, gestation length or, or, or calving difficulty, basically to create an animal that, that that's uh, that's more fit for purpose. So I suppose that the beef bulls that were destined to be used on dairy cows and heifers are ranked on the DBI on a number of different traits. So the the, the DBI is broken uh, into three different um, categories. You've uh, dairy, beef, and you've the, the carbon sub-index. Mm-hmm. So it's more naturally heavily weighted on the, the beef sub-index, which accounts for 62% of the monetary value of the sire. And then the calving sub-index, um, which is, encompasses you know, gestation length and uh, calving difficulty, accounts for 31% of the of the, of the value and then the last one then would be the carbon sub-index which takes into account like slaughter age gestation and carcass weight um they're they're also important as well as we're trying to get you know animals to slaughter quicker at heavier weights which is important to try and meet our 2020 emissions targets but the, the big thing that's in the beef sub-index it takes into account the, the carcass weight the feed intake the carcass confirmation the slaughter age the confirmation and the fat so there the, are the things that are quite important to, to the beef farmer. And I suppose before the beef index was launched, you know, we had some dairy farmers in some cases would pick uh, a beef bull solely on calving traits, such as calving difficulty and gestation length. And when picking the beef bulls, you know, um, this is like after the replacement um, target was met for the herd. So they switched from the, 
the dairy sires to the beef sires. And this naturally led to um, a decline in some of the beef merits, such as carcass weight, uh, spec and conformation, which is important to the beef farmer. And we cannot forget that, you know, about these beef farmers are purchasing these calves. They have to have an affordable animal that's fit for purpose. Otherwise, things become kind of difficult for them. How is the DBI measured, uh, Matcha? So the DBI is um, measured in euros. So it, it, it has a monetary value. So it could have a bull that could have a monetary value of 181 euro, or it could have a bull that might have a monetary value of 10 euro, or it could have a bull that could have a monetary value of, let's say, minus 50. So the, the higher the figure, the more positive the figure, the better. Uh, it's measured in euros. So for every one euro increase on the DBI, it's supposed to be an increase in um, one euro in profit uh, over an average Holstein freezing bull. Um, the euro value then is also uh, presented on a star rating system with one star being regarded as a very poor bull that would be predominantly in the bottom 20% of animals. And then you have a five star animal being regarded as a very good bull, which would be in the top 20% of animals okay and has there been studies and research done on the dbi to see if it's actually de- really delivers for the farmer uh, there has the uh, studies been done in fairness jim and um, the studies that were done in the beginning were done comparing traditional easy cabin short gestation sires that would normally would have been picked for the for the beef bulls and dairy herds compared them to high ebi a high dbi um, valuable then from the DBI uh, system. So uh, the long story short would be what they found in those studies was, uh, and it's a good news story, is that there was a marginal difference in calving difficulty and gestation length, which is good news for the dairy farmer as it makes it quite attractive for them and it's less hassle for them. But where the difference really became noticed was in carcass weights of the progeny. Um, so the high DBI calves had a higher carcass weight um, you know, and they had better confirmation score and they had a shorter uh, day to slaughter. And, you know, this also is beneficial for the beef farmer as they've done better on the grid system and you know, that's how they're, they're getting paid in terms of bonuses and quality assurance as well. The, the study, I suppose, was put in place, Jim, before the release of the DBI itself back in 2019. And look, there's naturally a lot better bulls available now than back then. And if we look at the study, you know, and we compare the top eight bulls versus the bottom eight bulls in terms of DBI alone. Um, there was a 30 euro difference in value back then at that time. So there was about a 13 kilo carcass difference uh, in those bulls when you compare the high DBI to the low DBI bulls at that time. So there was a clear difference in animal performance as, uh, as they were uh, much more efficient. Based then uh, on what you have just said, Matthew, what advice have you to the listeners who are going to purchase calves over the coming weeks? So I suppose, Jim, when you're in a shed looking at a calf, it can be hard to guess what the end result of that calf will be if he or she will deliver the goods in terms of carcass weight or confirmation. Just have a look at the DBI figure. See what the father's DBI figure is. Have a look of the, at the DBI figure of the calf that you're looking to buy. And, um, you know, there's, there's less risk involved if managed correctly. And also, you know, have a look at the, the dam or have a look at the general herd, uh, the dairy herd. See, are they good scopy cows with shape and depth in them? So if you combine a good maternal and a good uh, DBI sire, then, you know, there's a good chance that you're on to a winner with it. It's like the old saying, Jim, you know, um, genetics loads the gun and management pulls the trigger. So if the genetics is there and the beef farmer's management is good, then the, the result in terms of carcass weight should follow. 
and the profitability side of it, I suppose, like any business is then dictated by market conditions at the time of slaughter and the cost of inputs. Any last bit of advice for the listeners this morning, Matthew? Yeah, I suppose one last thing I'd like to say, Jim, and it's quite important, and it's focused only on dairy farmers only. So to the dairy farmers listening, um, please make sure that your herds... Uh, uh, nitrogen excretion uh, bans are submitted to the department before the 16th of March. Otherwise, you may end up in the high band of 106 kilos. It's quite important to most of the dairy herds, so the deadline is only two weeks away. If you haven't done already and if you're unsure how to do it, please contact your local consultant or the Department of Agriculture or the ICBF because you can submit it to the ICBF or you can get on to the Department of Agriculture about it. Okay. Well, look at Matthew. Thank you ever so much for joining us this morning. That listeners was Matthew Ryan uh, from the Chagas office in Thurles. Listeners, uh, my next guest this morning is Martin Hayden, TD, Minister for State at the Department of, of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. And sure, it isn't too long ago since I had the minister on, but the minister paid a visit to Tipperary last Thursday for a very important event, and that is Farm Safety uh, event that was on in Clonmel on Thursday. Good morning, Minister, and uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks and good morning, Jim, and good morning to your listeners. I know you have a brief for farm safety, and I suppose it's something that farmers really have to be conscious of, and particularly at this time of the year. And I know you introduced these eight EIPs across the country, and one of them covers Tipperary, Cork and Wexford, and that's the one you were down in Tipperary looking at. So how are they all going, Minister? Yeah, well, look, I, a great visit to Tipperary on Thursday. Um, just to explain, EIPs probably don't mean much to people, but when I was appointed as Minister of State in the Department of Agriculture back in July 2020, what I set about doing, coming at it as, a, as I am from a farming background in South Kildare, where myself and my wife um, still have our suckler farm and a small bit of tillage, um, I, I looked at it and said, look, we need to change the structures within the Department of Agriculture. Um, you know, we, we did a good bit around farm safety, but it was very piecemeal. Um, mm-hmm. There was no one whose dedicated job it was, uh, official-wise, within the department. There wasn't one dedicated funding stream. Um, so I streamlined that and I made that change. So there's now a unit within the department dedicated specifically for this area. And then the big thing from a minister's point of view is to get a dedicated budget, a budget line that instead of going looking for bits of money to do things, you have a set budget that you can then plan out what your expenditure is for the year. So once I secured that structural change within the department, one of the first things I looked to use was this EIP model, which is a European-based model, um, and it's basically called European Innovation Partnerships. And the idea is that it's co-funded by Europe along with Exchequer funding, and it allows you to develop um, locally-led ideas from the ground up. Uh, bringing in the issue uh, or the idea of subsidiarity that they talk about a lot in Brussels, which is really, really important. Now, this model of EIPs has normally been used for biodiversity projects, for um, environmental projects, but I decided I thought it could be a very good fit for farm safety. So we put out a call from the department. Uh, I secured one million euro and I said, I put out a call to community and local groups all around the country and said, if you have a good idea around farm safety, which so many people have, so many people are passionate about the area of farm safety. So many community groups, farming organizations and others had ideas around how we could do things more safely. We will fund you, we will grade you, and if you're successful, we will fund you to implement that locally, see how it works, 
And the idea then is obviously hopefully will help the local community in which it's been supported, but also that we will monitor it and look and learn from the lessons from it. And where projects have been really successful, we'll look to scale up. One of the um, key criteria for any projects that have applied was there had to be scalability to the idea. So that if it worked in an area like um, Tipperary, southeast uh, of the country, um, like Farmers for Safety uh, has done, that if we can take those learnings and maybe incorporate it into the next cap or into a new scheme uh, and, and bring those learnings out. That's the idea behind the EIP model. Normally, when we brand these for environmental purposes in the department, we could get four or five or six applications from local community groups. And the farm safety one had 30 applications. Such was the level of interest. It was phenomenal. Um, we, we screened them all um, through a very competitive process. We got it down to 12 um, that we really felt were fit for purpose. And then those 12 were put through a very um, tough three-month um, process where we funded them uh, to tease out that idea and flesh it out a little bit more. And at the end of that process, eight projects came through. Uh, I needed to go find more money, so I had to get another 800,000 to make sure we could fund all eight projects. And for Farmers for Safety was one of those eight projects um, which has covered farmers in the Tipperary area um, as well as in the southeast. Um, and beyond Tipperary as well. And the idea behind this project was um, to highlight the work that's happened. But what, what Farmers for Safety project did was it adopted a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring approach. Mm -hmm. um, and if any of us think about it, you know, who are we most influenced by as farmers? We're hugely influenced by our neighbours, what, what our peers are doing, what our other neighbours are doing. You know, and it's sometimes it's an impediment to change because we're slow to go for that new crop or that new farm, you know, are we going to go into organics? Or are we going to go plant a little bit of forestry? What will the neighbors think? They'll think I've given up. You know, that, that kind yeah. of an attitude matters. But to harness that sense of, you know, farmers have enough stress with inspections and with different things um, in terms of cross compliance and all the rest. From a farm safety perspective, a lot of our challenge around identifying risk is that we don't see it because we're in our yards every day. Our yards, our workplace, it's also home. And we maybe become a little bit blind to what is dangerous and what is hazardous. And Jim, if you're on my farm, you'll identify something that is more dangerous than I'm looking at every day and maybe don't see. And similarly, if I was on your farm, I would see something that maybe you didn't see the hazard in. It might be that cracked manhole cover. It might be a broken light. It could be something more dangerous in terms of the use of a loader in, in some instances mm -hmm. or cattle and handling facilities. But the whole trick of the peer-to-peer -peer approach that has worked really, really well with Farmers for Safety projects has been that farmers are supported and um, they they support each other through mentors. Uh, and Mary Oakley has been the, the temporary mentor. Um, and she she spoke about you know how she loved the role and the value she saw about going out to farms and being comfortable in farmers, being comfortable in their own yards and being able to talk through these issues. So that mentoring process has been really, really good. And that's ultimately what Farmers for Safety was. Um, and this was their conference held in the Talbot Hotel in Clonmel last Thursday, um, which highlighted, which was a farm safety conference, but highlighted a lot of the learnings that they've had from their project that has had really great engage engagement from the farmers that were, were signed up to it. Yeah, and I know they were very active on the ground all during last summer. I met them at a couple of the agricultural shows, making us all aware that they were out there and that they were there to help. And uh, it was wonderful to go and chat with them and see how they were getting on. And it's great that you came down to Tipperary to see how Farmers for Safety, uh, that particular project here in the southeast, was getting on. Well, thanks for that. But I actually went down and I launched the programme initially. Um, as I did with, with most of the other EIPs as well. 
Um, I wanted to be hands-on. I wanted to see them at the start, meet them and hear what their hopes and dreams were, if you like, and then see as the, proce- uh, the project has developed, how it worked out in, in practice. And huge credit is due to Neve Nolan there, who's the project manager, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a Galway girl who is uh, very much taken uh, to, the, to the area and um, you know, did huge work. And you're dead right, what Farmers for Safety, what the project did in terms of social media was a huge part of their campaign. They went out and about to a huge amount of agricultural shows all last summer. And I find it really refreshing and really encouraging and hopefully a trend we can continue that farm safety and farmer mental health and well-being would be an integral part of every agricultural show because it's it's a very big issue in agriculture. You know, we know that farming is the most dangerous workplace in all of Ireland. A farmer is seven times more likely to lose their life in a workplace incident than any other of the two million workers in the country. And that is a really shocking statistic and one we want to change. So it is right that this Farmers for Safety project would identify every opportunity to reach out to farmers um, and to spread that message about identifying risk, look at the hazards on the farm, and what are we doing to reduce risk? Because this is, it's not rocket science. It, it, we can become overwhelmed by all the challenges and the risks of farm safety, but it's actually quite simple. We have to identify all the risks. You can't eliminate them all, but you can definitely reduce them. And there's things we do every day on our farms that are dangerous and that don't have to be that dangerous. And we kind of have this culture of saying, oh, that was a near miss, sure, you'll always have them. And that's the attitude we have to change because statistically it's proven. If we reduce the amount of near misses, we will reduce the amount of um, fatal incidents and non-fatal incidents, of which, of which there are about four and a half thousand every year. But a lot of those incidents, people may not die, but they can end up in hospital. Their farming enterprise can be hugely impacted. Some of them can suffer life-changing injuries. Um, and the impact that that has on, on the family, on the income, um, and on the community in which they're based. Um, you know, we can reduce an, a, a lot of these instances happening by that approach. And Farmers for Safety's promotional element of what they did, they didn't just work with a set group of farmers, they spread that message loud and, uh, yeah. uh, loud and far, and it was, it was really refreshing to see, and great credit is due to everybody involved in the project. Without a doubt, Minister. Now, a minister doesn't visit a county without having to meet other people. I believe you met the two IFAs, the one in North Tiff and the one in South Tiff. Yes, exactly. So I was accompanied by my colleague, Senator Gareth O'Hearn, um, who, you know, had a, a very busy itinerary uh, set up for me due to my role in the Department of Agriculture and, and him knowing how important agriculture is uh, to the rural economy of, of Tipperary. We, we visited um, Tipperary Whiskey Distillery, which was a, a great visit. And then we were in Cashel, where we met with South Tipperary IFA. And later on, then the horse and jockey we met with North Tipper, Tipperary IFA. And we had a farm visit um, or two in, in between as well. And, you know, like the, the mm-hmm. engagement with the IFA is, 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 it was great. And meeting the farmers in their farms in a few other settings was really, really important. To hear about um, the challenges, like mm-hmm. we know the high input costs and the challenge that's having, particularly, let's say, on sheep farmers at the minute, they've seen a really significant drop in their overall margins um, between what the price you're getting mm-hmm. paid and the cost um, of inputs. And they're really hurting at the minute. Um, and that's a big challenge for us. So, you know, last year we had over 90 million euro of interventions to support farmers through the Potter scheme and through a number of different initiatives which benefited sheep farmers and other livestock farmers. Um, but it's um, it, it's identifying what the problems are now. Obviously, the high fertilizer costs at the minute are, are a real source of concern. Um, and, you know, that's something we're monitoring very closely um, with the merchants as to the stocks in the country and what the prices will be projected uh, into the future, because that does impact on farmers' bottom line. Um, and, you know, the engagement we had there 
and was really important for farmers to hear, you know, there's a number yeah. of sectors obviously that are, are, are getting good commodity prices at the minute, but it's the high input costs that are really challenging us there. And in terms of my role um, as Minister with responsibility for new market development and trade as well, I was able to identify and maybe articulate some of the progress we're making in terms of identifying new markets, because if we do talk about needing interventions for uh, short-term interventions to help farmers get over this particular period of high input costs. Ultimately, no farmer wants to be living on premiums or uh, exceptional payments. What they want to be getting is a fair price for their produce. I was able to talk about the Office of Openness and Transparency that we have uh, opened in um, and that we are setting up uh, in the department to shine a light on um, you know, the relationship between farmers and processors but also about the new markets that we're opening and um, how we got access to the US market for sheep meat last year and going back out to Washington in May um, to work with Borbia and others about driving on those relationships now and to actually get produce in there. Um, China is another very key market for us. I'll be in China in May as well. May is a busy month. I haven't told my wife I'm away as much as I will be now. <laughs> yes, but I, 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 I can let the people that didn't know because you know, obviously gaining beef access to China has been huge. Um, it was an awful lot of work. It was a top priority for me in the department. But once you get that access, which we want to get for our sheep meat in, in China as well, um, it's a whole different set of challenges then to actually build relationships with retailers, with processors, working with Irish companies to make sure we get the produce in there. And farmers don't always feel, Jim, that that's um, directly right. connected to them and the work they do on their farm. But I can reassure you, the more market opportunities we have for Irish produce, the better an end price we can get for farmers. Okay, well, look at Minister, we're out of time. I want to thank you ever so much for your time. That listeners was Martin Hayden, Minister for State at the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. Listeners, my next guest this morning is Alice Doyle. And Alice is the chairperson of the IFA's Farm, Family and Social Affairs Committee. And Alice is with me and we're going to be talking about some issues that affect the farm family in particular. Good morning, Alice, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim. Good to be with you again. Oh, it's great to have you back again too, Alice, I can tell you. Now, Alice, I suppose we'll start off with the nursing homes and the fair deal, uh, something that I, it seems to be a perennial. We don't, are we getting anywhere with this? We are, Jim. Um, it's look at there's huge interest in it uh, at the moment. Uh, I I find that we are dealing with a lot of queries at the moment. I think a lot of people are becoming aware of the significance of it, and particularly farmers now aware of the fact of what was known, what is now known as the three year cap, which was brought in in 2021. And it took a while for that to kind of embed itself and for people to get their heads around it. And even at, even still, it's very difficult to get your head around it because it's a little bit complex. But we're getting a lot of queries about it and we try to guide people through it and signpost them in the right direction as when they're making decisions. And most of the people that are ringing us, I think we could break them into maybe three categories. We have the category of people who are planning for the future. They're probably at a stage in life where they're thinking, well, I'm fine at the moment, but you know, we're all entering a certain period in our lives where uh, we're a bit like a car, we're wearing down and we it's not as easy to fix the parts as they used to. And people are thinking, well, you know, I might need a nursing home into the future. If I do, how do I stand when it comes to looking for the nursing home support scheme? Will I be able to avail of it? What do I need to do now in order to make myself 
uh, more eligible for more support. I'll give you an example. So if somebody owns a farm at the moment, they may be thinking about handing it over to the son or daughter or niece, nephew, whoever, and they, they're thinking, OK, if I do it now and it's handed over for five years, the value of that farm comes out of my assessment. Uh, which is great. That means that will be they will be eligible for more support from the nursing home support scheme. If they don't hand it over and they end up going into a nursing home or they have it handed over for less than five years, the value of the farm is taken into consideration. And that means they're eligible for less support from the nursing support scheme. So a lot of people, that's the first category of people who are asking us questions. Right. How do I plan? How do I plan to, to do this? The next category are people who um, are possibly for some reason or other getting very close to going into a nursing home. They've either been diagnosed with a serious illness or they've been minding somebody possibly with dementia or whatever, and it's become impossible to continue to mind the person at home. They've been told by the, the you know, the, the, the medics that mm -hmm. the person needs nursing home care uh, and full-time care. So they now have to make a decision and they don't get very, you know, they don't have very long to make that decision. And they're in a little bit of a panic because they don't have the same length of time to consider the options. So we have to go through it with them, what their options are, uh, and you have them to make the best uh, decision that they can available to them at the time. And then I suppose the third group um, are probably people who uh, have, you know, it's foisted upon them because of financial circumstances. They have no way of paying. They, they know they have to go into a nursing home. They don't have the finance. They may have the asset, but they don't have the money. And they have to figure out how they're going to get financial support, which they can get through the nursing home support financial scheme. But we have to guide them through that as well, which is a, another uh, another hurdle that has to be got over. So there are the three categories, Jim, that we deal with all the time. And um, I think the, more, the problem with most of the nursing home support scheme for farmers is that everyone's situation is individual. No two farmers are the same. There's no two farms the same size. There's no two farms in the same situation. No two farms are made up of the same, whether it's husband, wife, or maybe it's a, a person living on their own, or maybe it's a bachelor. It might be um, a, a widow or a widower. So there's a lot of different um, little different complications in there. And we have to talk them through all of that and help them as possible to avail of what is known as this three-year cap, which means that the value of your farm drops out of the equation for your assessment after three years. And that is huge in farming terms because of the value of farms. Like farms can be very asset rich, but may not have a penny and uh, to spend. And then that's where it's very important that we try and talk people through this. Listening to you then, Alice, I, I would be saying to anybody at this stage, they should be looking at the first option. Yes, that is that's the option we we all the time talk about, and we link that in with another area that we we are now looking at very carefully. It's one of our priorities for this year, and that's the whole area of farm succession inheritance, because that's where it's all linked in. And this is where we're dealing with both those issues side by side. And where some people just think, you know, of, oh, you know, I have to hand over the farm uh, because I want to, I'm getting older or I have a son and daughter getting married and they're going to come onto the farm or whatever. And they're thinking about it that way. But you can be doing that and that's perfect. I think that's the right way to go. But in the process, you can be thinking about possible nursing home care as well. Uh, I think the priority would be the succession, the farm succession and the inheritance uh, in this case. And we have a, a roadshow, we're calling it a roadshow, uh, beginning this year in April, 
uh, around that whole area. And at those uh, sessions, we would be have guest speakers in who are experts in all of this area, in the legal area, the taxation area, partnerships and all of that. And we as part of talking people through how to you know, discuss succession and inheritance with the family, we would be putting in how the fair deal fits in our nursing home support scheme fits into all of that as well. Uh, so that that whole roadshow, if anyone in your this area is interested, the one for Munster, we won in each of the provinces and the Munster one is on April the 20th. And it's in, I think it's the, the Firgrove Hotel in Mitchellstown. And we will have uh, three guest speakers there. There will be experts in the area of legal issues around uh, succession and inheritance, uh, the area of taxation and the financial implications of inheritance and succession and the third one will be a whole new area which is coming into farming now is partnerships right and how that affects um people go, thinking about um succession inheritance and as i said the the little tag on to all of those is possibly the nursing home support scheme and how that will be affected by all of these looking at that first option then that that we have been discussing Okay. Is it five years that the farm has to be transferred to the new owner? Yes, the, the, it's called the, the, the five year look back. And people find this very confusing because you have the five year look back, yeah. you have the three year cap, and then you have the successor who has had to be farming it for three years. So I'll explain those. The five year look back means that the farm, uh, the easiest way of dealing with all of this is if the farm is handed over for five years. Mm -hmm. And if it's handed over for five years, the farm is no longer in the equation for the assessment of um, of what you can pay towards your your um, uh, yep. stay in the yep. nursing home. Yeah. Yeah. The second part of that then is the three year cap is where if you um, do end up having to pay. Mm -hmm. uh, and your farm is taken, the value of your farm is taken into consideration, and it could be 3.75% for a couple, it's 7.5% for a single person. If that's taken into consideration, and if you qualify for the three-year cap, it means after three years, the uh, value of the farm is taken out of the assessment, uh, for a, uh, mm -hmm. the evaluation assessment. Now, but in order to avail of the three-year cap, you have to meet a number of criteria. And the main criteria are there is that you must either the person going into the nursing home or the person that they appoint as what's called the successor, which I'll explain in a moment, that either that person going into the nursing home or the uh, successor must have farmed the farm for three of the five years prior to the person going into the nursing home if they haven't already handed it over. So uh, let's say, for example, Tommy and Mary own a farm and Tommy gets very ill and ends up going into a nursing home and he has been farming the farm. Let's say he gets a stroke or whatever, and he's been farming the farm for the last five years, um, but he gets a stroke and he goes into the nursing home. He can appoint Mary, his wife, as a successor, his son, his daughter, or as far out as niece or nephew, as what's called the successor. Now, the successor isn't necessarily the person you're giving the farm to for good. It's a person who commits to um, running the farm for the next six years. Uh, on your behalf, they they're running it. Well, not was that, not really on your behalf. They're running it. They're they're given the right yeah. charge, and they must yeah. be a full time farmer. So that's the the second. Uh, so you've been farming for five years, three of the five years. You appoint the successor who much must run it for the next six years, and the successor must be a close relative, no farther out than niece or nephew. So you have that. So there's all of these things, and 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 that person has to be the successor has to be ineligible. Uh, consider what's called an eligible full-time farmer or prepare to farm the farm in a full-time capacity. Yeah, it's a nightmare. 
<laughs> it is it is it is to a point but when you sit down with people individually mm-hmm. uh, and you know you put all the cards on the table uh, it's a bit like a jigsaw you put all the bits on the table and you try and pull them together to make the picture mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it is complicated for somebody who's not doing it every day uh, but it, I find when we sit down with people and we we go through it with them bit by bit they get the picture you know they do get the picture but it takes a little while and everybody has an extra piece in the jigsaw that the person before them didn't have there's not a day goes by i'd say that somebody doesn't ask me a question that i have to go back to the drawing board again to see can i find the answer for it so you know that, that's that's how individualistic it is okay can i just paint one scenario then and i let you off this morning a uh, farm has been made over it's well over the necessary five years the elderly people on the farm the mother and father we'll say for the sake of argument living alone in a house of their own is the house then taken in as part of their assets Asset. yes if the house if they own the house yeah and even though it's you know it may have been part of the farm years ago but they kept the house and gave the farm to the son or daughter or whatever yeah um, and the house the valuation of the house is taken into consideration for assessment but the house automatically drops out after three years and jim before i can i give you two more pieces quick information you can of course i think your your members might might, your your listeners might like to know about the first the first one is that we often i've been spoken to you before i think about the susie grant jim which is the uh, education grant for for children going to secondary school people i need to be preparing their accounts and getting them ready now uh, as I said before, farmers, many farmers qualify for this and they don't realise they do. They need to talk to their accountant, get their accounts in order and apply for the Susie Grant. The opening date hasn't come up yet. Duty doesn't come up till April. Mm-hmm. We are now into March. And if you have to get accounts ready and whatever, you need a little bit of pre-thinking and pre-planning here. So I am saying, you know, I'd be saying farmers, go to your accountants, get your accounts in order, talk to your accountant about the Susie Grant, get the accountant and yourself to go online, look up what you have to fill in. And make sure you have it ready in time because the earlier you get in, the, the better chance you have of being accepted. Okay. Yeah. And the second thing I just want to mention is there's the new Assisted Decision Making Act uh, is coming into effect on the 26th of April. It was, it's um, what the act is actually is it's about supporting decision making and maximizing a person's capacity to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And the new act was signed into law on the 17th of December, but it's not coming into effect until the 26th of April. And like most people, you know, at some point in our lives will experience different levels of diminished capacity. Some of it will be age related. Some of it will come from an impairment. But uh, people need to be aware that there's this whole new um, assisted making decision making act is coming in. Now, I, we're only learning about it at the moment. Uh, I hope that in the near future, if I'm chatting to you, I'll be able to give you much more information. I'm in the process of trying to get the information now. Um, but I'll give you an example. Somebody might how somebody might need this. You might have a person who might be able to make decisions about their health care independently, mm-hmm. but they may need some help in making decisions about finances or housing. Mm-hmm. Or someone also may only need support to make decisions for a limited amount of time. For example, if they just had a mental, a small mental yeah. breakdown yeah. Mm-hmm. and come back again. So this whole new area now is coming in and it's going to be a huge area for people. So I hope in the future I may be able to give you some more insight into that. We'll be on to you for that one. I can tell you that much. As soon as yep. you have all the information, we'll be on to you. Look at Alice. I want to thank you very much. Enjoy your trip to North Hip on Thursday the 9th. That's the Thursday of next week, listeners. Uh, if you want to find out more, why not go and listen to Alice in the Abbey Court Hotel in Nina? 
Listeners, my next guest is a very important person because he is an eye surgeon who has identified issues with the spreading of Lyme. He is Gareth Higgins and he is attached to University Hospital Waterford. Good morning, Gareth, and thanks ever so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. I got a tip off that you had identified problems with the spreading of Lyme and farmers are being uh, encouraged to spread an awful lot of Lyme under the new EU regulations uh, with regard to greenhouse gases. There is a problem. So what is the problem? Well, um, Lyme is an alkali mm-hmm. and um, we, you know, in our uh, uh, department we would see a lot of chemical injuries, you know, acids, alkalis, household detergent, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Lyme is a particularly problematic one because Lyme is an alkali. Mm-hmm. And alkalis are worse, funnily enough, than acids because they penetrate the tissues quite deeply. They're kind of sticky or mm-hmm. they're particulate and therefore they're hard to get rid of. And I, I really, what I really noticed, I've had many, many blinding injuries over the last six months and there seems to be just such a lack of awareness of the need for, you know, wearing goggles, wearing gloves when you're handling these sort of things. I, I said I'd just bring it to people's attention because I, I really felt there was a problem. Um, in fact, we looked at our numbers recently, just did a very quick scan over the last four weeks, and we've been averaging between two and five cases a week in the eye casualty at University Hospital Waterford with Lyme burns. That is a that is a big problem, and yeah. are most of them coming from we'd say uh, farmers or and agricultural contractors who are yep. the people who Nine, spread 90%, the line? Ninety percent, I'd say, or more, are coming from uh, farms. Farms, and 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 in fact, just sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but um, what I noticed, even speaking to people, you know, my brother-in-law is a farmer, and mm-hmm. he he heard me interviewed on um, in Waterford and, and said that he really had no awareness that uh, there was a danger to Lyme. And it, it, it made me realise that there was a distinct lack of awareness. Um, if I may, I'm just going to go through... Do you mind if I go through how Lyme affects your eye? No, do, please, yeah. I think it's, it's sure. I think that's important, Gareth, yeah. Yeah, because people have this idea that it's a burn and, how oh, well, it'll recover. With, with Lyme, it's a particular problem. And I'll just go into a bit of detail about the eye. Not too detailed, but... The window in the front of your eye, the circle that you see, that's called the cornea. And mm-hmm. it's clear for a couple of reasons. One, it's got these cells on the outside, the epithelium. And if you ever grazed your eye, that's what you scraped off. And then it heals back within about 24 hours. However, the cells that replenish the surface of your cornea are called limbal stem cells. And those cells are at the edge of your cornea. Now, if you get a burn that's bad enough and deep enough, you'll burn those as well as your your, your skin cells of the outside of the cornea, and, and it won't heal. And it will heal in a different way. You'll maybe get the epithelium from the lining of the inside of the eyelids or the, or the eye called the conjunctiva, and that's not going to be clear. And you will, that means permanent you know, detriment to your vision. The second problem with the alkali is that it penetrates very deeply into the cornea so deeply, in fact, it gets to the inside layer of the cornea, and that layer is called the endothelium. And the job of that layer is that it keeps the cornea dry, it keeps it clear, keeps it thin, mm-hmm. by pumping fluid out all the time. And if you burn those, you end up with a permanently cloudy cornea. So right. there's two major, major problems. 
And the solution to the first one, when you burn the outside and you can't replenish, we very regularly use human placenta, uh, you know, f- mm-hmm. from the babies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and we use layers of that that's commercially available to, to sew over the eye. And that's a, quite an expensive thing. And for I've done quite a number of corneal transplants over the last six months on people with Lyme injuries. There are other industries that Lyme is used in, and I think in particular with regard to the building industry, Lyme is very important. And there doesn't seem to be the same level of injuries in the building industry as um, there is in the I, farming industry? I, I think not as much. Yeah. Um, but certainly we do see, like the classic one is a plasterer who's yeah. plastering a ceiling or somewhere above his head and a drop of plaster comes into the eye. Um, and, and that's certainly something we do see from time to time. Now, one thing with the lime, I mentioned to you that it's very hard to eradicate because it's yeah. sticky and it can get under the lids. And, and the, really, one, one other thing that came to my awareness was one of my neighbours is a farmer and she said after she heard me speak on the radio, she said that she set up an irrigation station on her farm which I was delighted to hear. Yeah. Because what often happens, you get people coming in and they have done nothing at home and they come in and maybe they're two hours getting to the hospital, don't know, or they go somewhere else and then they come to the eye department and three hours and four hours have passed. Meanwhile, they've been burning the eye for those four hours. Whereas if they could have irrigated it right there at the scene, then they would have spared themselves a lot of the injury. Right. So, so and it's very important to be set up. For, you, you need to be set up with protection for your eyes, goggles, try and stop it happening, gloves so you don't like get the, the lime on your hand and then rub your eye and get the lime mm-hmm. into it. Um, but also you need to have an irrigation station. And I was looking up some of this stuff and mm-hmm. it said that really an irrigation station should be within about 20 seconds of wherever you're using the lime. Right. So I, I doubt that most farmers would have the wherewithal to irrigate within that time frame. Yeah, but even if they could get to water of any description fast, absolutely, it it would help. Even if that's a water trough out in the field, uh, the yeah, quick, it needs yeah. very vigorous irrigation. Yeah. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the pH to normalise. Right, I can I can understand that. Look, when I was talking to you then before we went on air, you said that you also uh, treat p- patients with uh, skin cancers around the eye. Yes, it's very common, um, and particularly in the farming communities. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the sunny southeast, and we seem to have a disproportionate amount of head and neck you know, cancers. Mm-hmm. And the most common one would be a thing called basal cell carcinoma, or BCC for short. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next most common would be squamous cell carcinoma, or, or SCC for short. And those two... You know, they tend to be very common. Um, you know, we see people getting a lot of sunshine and so on. And I, I deal with that a lot because I, I would be reconstructing eyelids. You know, sometimes you might lose an eyelid in the process of getting rid of these tumours. But they're very much preventable because if you're wearing a hat, if you're wearing, you know, using sun protection, then, you know, you're not going to get these things. But in the, in, in the elderly community, really, there wouldn't be the same awareness. And second of all, it's historic sunlight exposure that causes it so you know it's all very well doing it now but when you were 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 you probably weren't using sun protection to the same extent another type of cancer and maybe you don't uh, deal with it is and that's people's ears because again they're something that farmers don't protect absolutely you're very right that's very true really the places that you get the skin cancers are you're right the exposed areas like the ear the nose. Uh, for me, I deal with the cases in the upper nose, 
the lower eyelids will be more common than the upper eyelid because it's it's more exposed to the sunlight. In on the inner part, what we call medial, in toward the nose side, would be more common than getting it on the the outer corner of the eye. And we see an awful lot of cases in the temple as well, yeah. which are right about the ear. So we we tend to divvy them up between my, ourselves um, in ophthalmology. Uh, ENT would deal with a lot of the, the, the ones around the ear and that mm-hmm. and a, a, one of our general surgeons deals with a lot of the other cases the, the other cases because you do see quite a few farmers particularly those who don't uh, wear headgear that they seem to get uh, a lot of cancers on their forehead more than maybe and uh, if they're going bald on top of their head as well Yes, that's very true. And you you don't even need to get the skin cancer to to suffer. You know, uh, my colleagues in dermatology deal a lot with farmers and people who live out and work outdoors. And they would do, they develop these, what we call field changes in the skin. And it's not cancer, but what it is, is you get these things called actinic keratoses. And they're, you know, where the skin starts producing sort of flaking lesions and breaking down and that sort of thing. And it can get quite nasty even before you get skin cancer. Another thing that I would see commonly is the skin can get quite tight as a result of chronic sun damage. And what that causes, it can pull the eyelid downwards and we end up with what we call a cicatricial or or, or scarring-related ectropion, which is where the eyelid pulls away from the eye. And you see that a lot in farmers as well. That's another sunlight-related thing. So it's not all cancer, but obviously cancer would be the, the, the biggest part of our workload. Okay, before I let you go this morning, will you give me the tips for the persons who are dealing with Lyme and also tips for farmers who expose themselves too much to sunlight? Sure, um, taking the Lyme first. Well, it's, it's, not, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, really. You need to be wearing gloves, I think, and probably you need long sleeves to protect your skin from the Lyme. And in particular, you need to be wearing goggles, I think. Right. Um, now, I, w- I would argue if you've got a lot of, you know, lime in the air, you mm. probably should be wearing a mask as well, an FFP2 mask to filter out that. I, I had one colleague say to me, he was actually a doctor, and said that he spreads lime on his land and he gets nosebleeds. And I was surprised he wasn't using protection himself, given his job. But it just shows you, you know, the lack of awareness, and that would be from damage to the mucous membrane. So I think goggles, uh, a mask, and gloves, that would be the, the basics. And taking your second question in terms of the, um, the sunlight, I mean, I think the best thing we could do with the fashion industry is start bringing hats back into fashion. I mean, in the old days, if you see speeches by Michael Collins or, mm-hmm. or Eamon de Valera back in the day, everyone, the whole crowd would have been wearing hats in those days. So I imagine that would have been very protective. But obviously the obvious things are sunblock every day, whether it's sunny or whether it's cloudy. Uh, because you're getting ultraviolet through the sun, through the clouds anyway. And I think a hat is essential if you're going to be working outdoors. Well, okay. And a broad-brimmed hat that will cover your ears. <laughs> Rightio. Not a cap like I wear, so. Okay, but Lucas, thank you ever so much for bringing this to our attention and also for joining us this morning and uh, sharing your thoughts and, in particular, your tips to make certain sure somebody doesn't get damaged their eyes or that they don't get some of these skin cancers that can be so uncomfortable. My, my pleasure.
That listener was Dr. Gareth Higgins, who is an eye specialist with University Hospital Waterford. That listener is AgriPort for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me at the same time next week. Coming up next is the news at 10 o'clock. And after that, Eamon DeWire presents Down Your Way.